From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to everyone listening in on one of our affiliate stations and those who stream us on the Conspiracy Show app, those of you who subscribe to the YouTube channel, Strange Planet, however and wherever you're listening. I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Roswell investigator Thomas Carey is here. He's the co-author, along with Don Schmidt, of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51, the Foreign Technology Division, previously known as T2 at Wright-Pat, where aircraft belonging to, to adversaries were taken, certainly during the Cold War. They tried to reverse engineer it. Then along comes... Colonel Philip Corso, uh, talking about his work at the, uh, uh, the Foreign Technology Division. How much of the day after Roswell, how much of his account is, is credible? That's a good question. Uh, we, for some reason, we always get questions about Corso because I think as far as UFO books go, that a lot of people read that book the day after Roswell. And uh, what I didn't like about the book was that there were no footnotes or endnotes. Nothing was substantiated. It was like a fiction book, but it was nonfiction. No index. Uh, uh, but uh, the th- what he... What he's and he uh, he also tricked uh, Senator Strom Thurmond into writing a foreword for the book. Thur- uh, Strom Thurmond didn't know it was a UFO book, and he made all these glowing comments about the Corso. As soon as he found out that it was a UFO book, he said, "Take t- I'm out of this. Take take me out of this." So uh, he 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 fooled. Uh, Strom Thurmond. The other things, uh, like he mentioned, the bodies going to Fort Riley in Kansas. Uh, we we don't have any knowledge of that. I mean, we pretty much know where the bodies went and when they went and how many there were. But he's got them at Fort Riley, Kansas, and uh, at a date when they were still out in the field. Uh, things like that, and also he was a lieutenant colonel, if I recall, and this would be too big of a project to run for a lieutenant colonel, at least in my opinion. And I think that he was working for General Trudeau, who was the guy's name. And uh, Trudeau says, "Oh, we got this, uh, we got this cabinet over here full of uh, Roswell files. Uh, see what you can." You know, I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness, what what are you doing here?" Uh, it just, the whole thing to me just did not hang together. Now, Corso had, a, I guess, a distinguished military career. Uh, a lieutenant colonel is, 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 I mean, there are plenty of them. They're, the, the next grade full colonel is where you really are somebody. Anything below full colonel is sort of, it's almost, you know, sometimes the, uh, the, it's a gift that they give you a, a lieutenant colonel rating, but 
I just thought the, the the rating for that project was should have been in a higher uh, uh, grade classification. But right, like General Twining, who ended up, as you say, chair of the Joint Chiefs. Y- yes, yes. Uh, Corso, uh, we thank him for his service, but I uh, I don't know what he was looking at, and uh, a lot of the stuff in there to me read like a fiction. And uh, and like I said, the, uh, he was in charge of the back engineering projects, I guess. But like I said, uh, the only the only project that I know that has been substantiated, we have a we have the uh, progress reports from Battelle Institute to Wright Wright Patterson. We have those progress reports, and. Uh, you know, thanks to our associate in Florida, Anthony Bergaglia. But the Corso, you're just relying on him. And uh, the, the the thing in his favor, though, is he seemed to have had a good life. He didn't need this to to make you know make a name for himself. He had a fine military career. And uh, going, making uh, th- statements like he did is going out on a limb. So, in that in that respect, uh, I have to consider it because uh, he was out on a limb when he didn't have to be. Can you even place him based on your research? Can you place him at Wright Patterson? No, I, uh, I, uh, we can't. What's interesting is about that book is the day after Roswell. That book from my understanding, is what led our former uh, Defense Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, uh, the Honorable Paul Hellyer, to first seriously delve into the whole UFO ET issue. It was that very book. It was, That was a New York Times bestseller. The, the goal of every author is to get on the New York Times bestseller list, and that book was made it. And I'm trying to think of another UFO book that did, and I can't. So a lot of people read that book, and uh, uh, I, I didn't know Paul Hellyer, uh, that, that was his inspiration, but, uh, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to take a minute. We didn't do this in hour one, but we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the 18, uh, 18 building complex, A through G and Hangar 23, uh, but just kind of give us a sense of the the size and the scope of Wright Patterson above ground and below. <laughs> well, I was never there. Don has been there. I have never been there. But going by uh, some of the witnesses that we talked to, they felt that most of ninety percent of Wright Patterson is underground. Because you drive around, you see an empty field, but you see these air vents coming up out of the ground. So. It's in our book of people who've gone to write Patterson that they're they're struck by uh, the the fact that they, there's a lot of open space, but they have these signs that uh, that the, uh, and the percentage that we heard was like ninety like ninety percent of Wright Patterson is, is underground, and we do have statements in the book from fellows who they're dead now, but uh, actually helped build the the various subterranean levels, and uh, and they saw things down there, and so 
you know, it, it's it, it it's a it was a I guess it still is a, a strategic air command base, a SAC base. But uh, they, you know, they they want to have things uh, bomb proofed so they can uh, function if we're ever attacked. And so a lot of it is uh, in. Uh, uh, in subterranean vaults and caverns and things like that. And what's interesting is this uh, Hangar 23 slash 18. We know there are at least four subterranean levels to that. They had vaults back there and, uh, someone even said they saw an aircraft down there. But in recent years, I find this interesting. All of that has been cemented over. Ah. All of that has been cemented over, so you can't get down to any of those uh, lower levels where all the action was. And uh, I just find that interesting. But but part of Wright Pad is open to the public, right? To tourists and students yes. and things like that. Absolutely, absolutely. That, they have uh, our last chapter is called the the. Uh, it's something about. Let me. <laughs> look at the look at it. it's uh in the shadow of ghosts yes in the shadow of ghosts is our last chapter it's about uh uh visitors to uh, Wright Patterson today uh the the base is full of ghosts uh, from things like what we're talking about and uh, a lot of people uh, uh ask about hangar 8 uh, hangar 18 is the number one uh, question they have and uh, of course uh there never was one but uh uh they will some of them will admit that uh, there were things stored there but they they don't know any more than that so i want to take some time and and talk about the late senator Barry Goldwater and and his uh, well it seemed like for for uh, decades he tried desperately uh, to take a peek inside right pat <laughs> uh, i mean and here is the you know the uh, a distinguished senator from arizona who sat on the armed services committee the aeronautical and space sciences committee he was the chair of the the strategic nuclear forces committee and yet he asks to go see Wright Patterson, and he's shut down. Now, who is this General Curtis LeMay, and how and why does he have the power to tell Senator Goldwater, you're not allowed? Well, he was the Air Force Chief of Staff. That was his power. (laughs) Uh, uh, Curtis uh, Bombs Away LeMay was a, a hero from World War II, and by 1961... He rose to become the Air Force Chief of Staff with four stars. And that's a full general. That's not like a, that's not a five star. It's a full four star general. So he's Air Force Chief of Staff. Barry Goldwater is a respected senator, uh, from New Mexico, uh, uh, Arizona, uh, Arizona in the U.S. Senate, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. So he's a powerful man. And he was respected on both sides of the aisle, unlike today's politics. Uh, and um, he was also a, a UFO buff. And uh, he was also a major general, that's two stars, 
in the Air Force Reserve. So he's wearing a several hat, hats. He's a U.S. Senator. He's a general in the Air Force Reserve. Man of great talent. And uh, he ran for president in 1964. He lost uh, to Lyndon Johnson uh, in a landslide, which was the post uh, Kennedy assassination first election after that. So a lot, a lot of sympathy going there. So um, he's out in uh, Wright Patterson, and then we figure this is 1963 now, 1963, because LeMay was chairman of the uh, chief of staff from 1961 to 1965 when he retired. So uh, this is 1963, and so Goldwater's at Wright-Patterson, and he's heard about uh, Roswell from his good friend William Blanchard, General Blanchard. He's a, he was a colonel back in '47 at uh, the base be, uh, on the base. The 509, yeah, 509th Bomb Group and base commander. He was a full colonel, and uh, he rises to four stars himself at a by age 50. Blanchard has four stars. He's going to be the next chief of staff. Next chief of staff. Uh, in the Air Force. He dies at age 50 as the vice chief of staff in 1966. So, but Goldwater learned about Roswell and this so-called Blue Room at Wright-Patterson where all the alien artifacts were stored. That was the rumor. So he's at Wright-Patterson. He said, huh, I wonder if I, uh, you know, I'm interested in flying saucer. I heard about this. I'm going to call up LeMay just to make sure. I He says, General, I'm, I'm here at Wright-Patterson. I've heard about this room where you have all of this alien stuff. Might I get go in there? And he said it was the first time you ever heard LeMay lose it because they were good friends. He said he dressed me up. One side and down the other. No, you can't go in there. Hell no, you can't go in there. I can't go in there. And don't you ever ask me that again or I'll see that you're court-martialed. Well, thank goodness they were friends, huh? Oh, my God. So, <laughs> yeah, some friend. <laughs> yes. So uh, Goldwater said he tried a few more times, there, but then he finally gave up. He couldn't get anywhere. And uh, the, whether it was... Uh, uh, LeMay himself could not get in there. Maybe, maybe it was just to put an exclamation point on what he was saying, but maybe also he was banned as well by whoever was controlling that, and we don't know who that is uh, himself, so we don't know. But uh, we heard it from another witness who was there at the time. He says, boy, that was the, that was the buzz on the base for a couple of days that Goldwater was turned down by LeMay from going into this uh, blue room. Now, getting back to uh, to Colonel William Blanchard, uh, commanding officer at the 509 in Roswell during the UFO incident, and he tells Goldwater, what, that everything that you've heard about Roswell is true? Well, yes. I mean, uh, he's not going to lie to Goldwater. I mean, uh, they're good friends. They're both Air Force generals. And uh, so, and he knew that uh, 
that uh, Goldwater was a UFO buff, interested in UFOs. And, uh, you know, whether he was on a flight somewhere, we don't know. But that's where Goldwater learned about the Blue Room and about the the artifacts and Roswell, that Roswell was real. It was from his good friend. And he says that Blanchard was his good friend. So uh, that's who he learned it from. And as you say, Blanchard was kind of fast-tracked to go to the top, but died of, a, I think it was a massive heart attack, at his desk yes, at the age yes. of 50. Are we sure yes. that was a heart attack, Thomas? Yeah, well, uh, that's what that's what we're told. He, it was at his desk. And what's interesting, see, is... Uh, Blanchard is a West, was a West Point graduate. He was a football and ice hockey star, uh, for, for your Toronto, uh, visitors, uh, uh, listeners. Blanchard was an ice hockey star as well as a football star. He was six foot four or six foot five, which was tall in those days. He had movie star good looks. Every other officer in the Air Force knew that he was going to be chief of staff someday. You know how it is that you have that sun spotlight on you. That, and he couldn't wait to get rid of that. When the Roswell crash happened, he could not wait to have someone else take that over. Uh, Ramey, Ramey took it over, Roger Ramey. Right. And uh, even Ramey knew that Blanchard would surpass him one day in rank. And uh, so Blanchard was happy that someone else took over this because he didn't want anything on his record that would, uh, you know, dismirch, dismirch his record to the top. And that's that's what his eye, uh, he had the eye on the prize, which was chief of staff. What would that have meant, though, for disclosure? Just think of we have we have the, the commanding officer at the 509 during Roswell who is admitted to. You know, the former chair of uh, some very powerful Senate committees that every, you know, Roswell is true. There were aliens. There was UFOs. They crashed. They were taken to Wright-Patterson. And now all of a sudden, you know, we have Blanchard as a ultimately becoming, you know, maybe a full four-star general on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, what would that have meant to have a guy like that in that position? What would that have meant for disclosure? he divorced, he did not want to be his name in the same paragraph as UFOs or Ros- he wanted to get as far away from that Roswell thing as he could because uh, Roswell UFOs is still a taboo subject to people in the limelight whether you're talking especially politicians uh they don't want to don't put my name in that story Except he'd already told he'd already told Goldwater, and then Goldwater writes about it in a book. So the cat's out of the bag. Well, Blanchard was already dead. True. Uh, true. Yeah. So you know, I mean, we we Blanchard was written about in 1980 in the Roswell incident. Uh, so he he's dead and buried. So it's you know can't hurt him anymore. No. No. But uh, had he, I'm just wondering, had he lived though? And oh, those, had he lived? Yeah. Uh, UFOs is is uh, viewed as an impediment if you're looking to rise, right? Uh, it's especially in the military where this is still, you know, the, the air the Air Force position is that it was a Project Mogul balloon, and that the little bodies were these uh, dime store mannequins from this. That's mannequins, right? That, right. That's their official position. 
you don't want to go challenging that if you want to go up to the top. You want to show that you're a team player. So wouldn't have meant it wouldn't have meant anything. He would have denied it or he would have maybe had he lived he would have told Barry, Hey, you know, do me a favor, don't just leave my name out of that book. I'll I'll give you another example. Uh Senator Joseph Montoya from New Mexico. Yes. Back in, back in forty seven was the lieutenant governor of New Mexico. Thomas, can I just get you to hold that story for the next sure. segment? Because sure. uh, I love this story. It's a great one. Hold on. We'll come back. Thomas Carey, as we continue to delve into Wright Patterson, the real Area 51, right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thomas, you were just about to tell uh, us the story of then-Lieutenant Governor, sort of second-in-command in in New Mexico, Joseph Montoya, who happened to be at the uh, 509 airfield when the, uh, the debris, I guess, the crash debris was taken to the airfield. What was he doing there? He was there uh, dedicating uh, an aircraft. The wreckage and the bodies started coming in when he was there. You have to figure that the base commander went on leave. We know he didn't go on leave. He went He went out to the crash site. The governor of New Mexico split. He was supposed to be going down to Roswell to dedicate Air Force Day or something like that. He split to the mountains. Every It was like all people in positions of authority that might be called upon to for an explanation, they all got out of Dodge. Right, know? right. So that left Joseph Montoya by himself. And he had a few uh, Montoyistas or young people who were supporters of his. They were called Montoyistas. And so he went over to the hangar area to visit with them. And while he was there, in comes the first parts of the wreckage and the little bodies, and he lost it. He said, oh, my goodness, what is this? And he saw the little bodies with the big heads, and he says, where's the phone? Get me the nearest phone. (laughs) So he called a local Montoyista in Roswell, get over here, get me the hell out of here as quick as I can. I'll be over by the water tower. Well, the water tower is still there. The hangar is still there, and they... They went and got Montoya and drove him to uh, their house. The fellow's name was Peter Anaya, local Montoyista. So they kept Montoya at the house to calm him down. He says, get me a drink. Do you have a drink? He says, well, we got some Jim Beam. He said, give me the bottle. He takes the bottle of Jim Beam and glug, 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 glug. He he drains the bottle (laughs) and and he collapses, goes to sleep on the couch. But according to uh, Peter and his brother, Ruben Anaya, it was a fitful sleep. He was jerking and, oh, he was just in horrible shape. This is even after a bottle of Jim Beam. So finally he wakes up and he says, okay, take me back to the uh, hotel. So they took him back to the Nixon Hotel in Roswell. Well, years later, in 2002, we're making a documentary for the Sci-Fi Channel called The Roswell Crash, Startling New Evidence. It was a two-hour special for the Sci-Fi Channel put together by Don and myself, Don Schmidt and myself. Uh, Bryant Gumbel was the host. Right. 
and they interviewed Ruben and Pete Anaya on that show. Well, I was there, when, you know, down in Roswell when they were interviewing them, and I noticed that Pete Anaya's son, who was in his early 30s, was there as well. So I went over to Pete Anaya's son. I said, hey, and his son says, I worked for Senator Montoya. He was a uh, staffer of Senator Montoya. I said, well, did he ever tell you that story about that day down in Roswell? He said, oh, yes, yes, yes. I said, well, what did he say? He says, it was all true, but if anybody ever asked me about it, I will deny it entirely, but mm. it was all true. Right. So that gives you their, you know, they'll, they'll talk on the QT, but officially they don't want anything to do with UFOs, Roswell, paranormal, that sort of stuff. Right, right. Actually, I think it was after that, that sci-fi special aired, you received an email from a woman in Georgia who was a freshman at the University of Georgia back in the early 60s, and she had a roommate from Alabama that, who had an an interesting uh, story to tell about. Is, yeah, That is my longest-held lead. That lead lasted me 17 years. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> that's why when people go, they said, "Well, I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down to Roswell this weekend and solve that case." Oh yeah, sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> but but this involves yeah. Operation Paperclip because I want to get into that. But yes, well, this lead 17 years. We I got this email. This woman in in uh, Georgia went to University of Georgia. And she saw our uh, Sci-Fi Channel special. She wrote to me and said that in 1964, she was a freshman at the University of Georgia. And her roommate, her father, was a uh, German who had come over with Operation Paperclip. And they flew him from uh, Fort uh, uh, in Texas, uh, Fort Bliss in yes. Texas to Fort Worth to do some uh, research on the wreckage but while he was there they told him don't look at the don't look at these little bodies of course he looked at the little <laughs> bodies that were there and I said oh my goodness so for 17 years and I won't go through all the twists and turns it took us let's say 15 years to find it was it turned out to be not the girl's father but her boyfriend's father hmm and we were looking for the uh, for the wrong name, and it was through a fortuitous uh, publication of an article in a uh, local newspaper down there in Huntsville. The girl was from Huntsville, Alabama, where the, our space program is, and uh, her brother wrote an article in a newspaper saying, "called Growing up in a rocket family or something like that," and he had the same last name as this girl at the University of Georgia. And so I, I sent the article to my source, and she says, "Oh my goodness, we're looking for the wrong guy. We want we want his her boyfriend's father, which had a different name, and uh, we uh, found we found the daughter that was her former roommate. And so we made plans that that this you know that she would contact her and co- try to corroborate the story. Well, she did contact her even in person." But she never asked her the the story. So I said, "Oh my God, what am I? You know, this is 17 years now. Uh, yeah, how much longer do you want me to wait? You know." So uh, I called the girl, I, I, the, the woman myself. 
She was divorced twice, had two different last names, but we found her. I called her up. This is last year. And first she remembered, oh yeah, she was my roommate. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I don't remember that story. No, I, I don't, I don't remember that. And I said, oh, because this woman sounded like she was telling the truth. And by the end of her, then she got off the phone and I heard her talking to somebody in the back. And finally she came back on. She, she said, well, I can't remember everything I ever said, which to me was a confirmation. She was walking it back. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But 17 years. Oh my. For that one witness. It's a, it's a record. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I just have to laugh when you say, oh, we're, we're going down to Roswell this week. We're going to try to solve that. Case. Right. I mean, it is a swamp, isn't it? The whole Roswell yeah. investigation. Uh, but it does lead us into, into a little more depth into Operation Paperclip, uh, during which time the, uh, the United States exfiltrated, I guess, somewhere between five and six hundred German scientists. Totally, yeah. Uh, in, and their families. Uh, including, of course, the, uh, the head of the V2 rocket program, the rocket man himself, uh, Werner, Werner von Braun. Um, we're coming up onto a break here. I just want to start, sort of dip our toe into this conversation about Werner and then we'll come back. But, but, um, what do we know about von Braun's, uh, coming and going at Wright Pat? Did he spend a lot of time there? Well, we never, we never thought he did, but we have witnesses who said he was there a lot, which made sense, you know, uh, being the, uh, the, the, uh, father of our, of our space program. And he would, uh, the witness that we are, I'm thinking of said that he was always accompanied by, uh, security people because he was, uh, you know, a paperclip German and, uh, very important, but he was always accompanied by security. And they would go into this uh, hangar, stay there and come out. Go into this hangar, stay there. He was always going to the same place at Wright-Patterson. And uh, this particular witness said that he was a guard at this hangar. And that one day, this truck pulled up, backed in, and the hangar door closed. And the, the truck was in there for a while, and then the, the, the hangar door opened, and out drove the truck, but there was something underneath the tarp in the back that was, uh, they said it was circular. I think it was the inner cabin that we talked about before because it was the size and shape of a Volkswagen Beetle under a tarp, just like it was described going down Main Street in uh, 1947. So that was the hangar where they kept the, the uh, escape capsule or inner cabin. Whether they ever got into it or not, I don't know. Back with more in a moment. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thomas, this is a, a short segment, so but we can finish up on the Werner von uh, Braun story. So that so was he seen then coming and going from the infamous Blue Room? Well, you can speculate that it was the Blue Room or Hangar 18, but wherever what it, whether it was one or the other, out came this uh, 
this artifact from the Roswell crash, this uh, this uh, inner cabin or or uh, uh, what do you escape capsule? We don't know what else was in there, but we you can speculate that that's what it was. He he sort of talked in kind of vague terms about the ET presence here on Earth. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yes, you would figure that uh, being a uh, physicist, uh, space program, rocket development, that uh, that they that he and some of the high-ranking paperclip Germans who were brought over starting in late 1945, and uh, originally they were housed at uh, Fort Bliss in Texas, uh, would be called to the crash site, and they were. Uh, uh, I think uh, the uh, astronaut uh, uh, James Mitchell, uh, Edgar uh, Edgar Mitchell, Edgar Mitchell. I have so many names going. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I know. I know. Names, dates, places. Uh, Edgar Mitchell mentioned that, and there were others who mentioned that. We uh, we, we had a witness who put him there, plus uh, some of the other high-ranking ones, uh, and. Uh, they, the Germans felt that they were brought to the site to confirm that it wasn't Russian, that the, what had crashed was not Russian. Well, they knew right away that it wasn't Russian, and they felt that that was their what they wanted from the Germans was to tell them that whether it was Russian or not. And uh, they, of course, said, "No, this is uh, not Russian." So uh, he was at the crash site. And uh, he was very tight-lipped, but at some point he did reveal that uh, uh, in an article in some in some journal and during a speech somewhere, and I think the words were, uh, "We we are confronted by a power much greater than our own," something to that effect, and. Uh, I know I'm, I'm butchering the statement, but there was some some statement that, that we are confronted with a power much greater than our own, but we don't we and we don't know what their base home base is. Right, right. Yeah, something like that. And uh, so he knew, he knew. Certainly, he knew all the, the higher ups, and uh, he was the top man in the space program. Worked for. Uh, NASA worked for the Army. We got our first satellite uh, Explorer One up because of him, and uh, uh, he had a uh, second in command was a fellow by the name of Ernst Steinhoff, a, a nuclear, uh, a uh, physicist, engineer who had a similar career, uh, but he stayed at mostly at uh, Alamogordo with the guided missile program rather than the space program although he was he got interested in the space and he's in the New York uh, New York huh, New Mexico uh, uh, Hall of Space Hall of Fame and another one as well right but it, these fellows are uh, uh, what's his name uh, von Braun died at age 65 which today is young yes uh, and uh, Steinhoff died at age 89 just a few years ago. But uh, uh, they they were there at the crash site. Uh, 
there were paperclip Germans stationed permanently at Wright, Wright Patterson and also at uh, Alamogordo Holloman Air Force Base. So they had a lot to do with our space program. And uh, after World War II, the, uh, the race was on to, to get as many of those uh, paperclip Germans uh, as they could because the Russians were after them as well. But the prize... The the big catch was uh, Werner Werner von Braun. Right, I think it was from that movie All the Right Stuff about the space race, and uh, one of the astronauts, American astronauts, says to the other, "Do you think we'll beat the Russians to the moon?" And the other one responds, "Yes, our Nazis are better than their Nazis." <laughs> That's true. That's true. Because, All right. uh, you, know, you know the Russians put Sputnik up first before we. We put Explorer 1 up. Oh, they were kicking our butt in that regard. Uh, All right, we'll take another one final timeout, come back and finish up with Thomas Carey as we take a look inside Wright-Patterson. Stay with us. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thomas Carey, co-author of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, stays with us for a few moments yet. Uh, We were talking about Operation Paperclip and Werner von Braun. Now, some of these uh, Nazi uh, scientists that came over and were working inside Wright-Pat, I think in the book you mentioned... Uh, and I'm not sure if it was the one who uh, you mentioned in association with von Braun. They went in. They went later to work with in the private sector, like with the Rand Corporation and so forth, didn't they? Oh yes, uh, Rand I believe stands for Research and Development. Uh, yes, they. You know, uh, some went to Lockheed, some went to think tanks like Rand. Uh, uh, you know, they were. They were the best in the field. They, they were the best in the field. So, You write in the book that all of the UFO debris and the alien bodies were likely cleared out of Wright-Pat by the mid-1980s. Uh, why was that, and where do you suppose they ended up? We learned from a fellow who worked at uh, uh, FTD. He, he worked at FTD. And we got that information because we ourselves did not know. We we knew they got the right right field, right Patterson, and we knew that there were sightings of individual bodies being autopsied at various places around the country in subsequent years, suggesting that they were lending them out for study. But uh, this fellow that worked at uh, FTD, he said pretty uh, uh, knowledgeably. At least he appeared that uh, the bodies uh, left Wright Patterson in the early 80s, about 1982, 83, for Area 51. So we take his word uh, that at least, you know, that's what he said, that they went to Area 51. And the reason was because uh, Wright Patterson, Dayton, Ohio, was getting too built up around Wright Patterson. And, uh, uh, they couldn't. They were fearful of testing aircraft in that congested or that uh, metropolitan area and have one crash. 
in, in people's uh, neighborhoods. So they needed something, a place more open. And especially with the testing of these, at the time, uh, high-altitude spy planes, and then later on the stealth aircraft, the uh, the area around uh, Wright Field, Wright Day, uh, in Dayton, was too built up at this time. Plus, there were too many rumors going on about what was there of an extraterrestrial nature. Uh, to use a, an acronym, the place got too hot. The place got too hot, and they had to do something. So they got rid of at least the bodies. Probably some of the wreckage uh, went elsewhere. But uh, right now, the, 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 where the where the, at least the Roswell bodies are, we had a former head of FTD named George Weinbrenner, General George Weinbrenner, on his deathbed told somebody that uh, we have five. We have five of them in Utah. That would be at the at Dugway. We believe that the Roswell, the five Roswell cadavers, are at Dugway. Uh, test. It was, it's like an Area 51, but in uh, uh, Utah. Uh, if there are other bodies, uh, I don't know about where. You know, there, there are plenty of places they could be. You know, but uh, my my. My own focus was Roswell, where where they might be, and we uh, we believe that they're currently in uh, Utah. Uh, subsequent to uh, to Roswell, um, do you do you know? Do you have knowledge that other UFO crash uh, debris um, materials were taken to Wright Pat post forty seven? Yes, uh, I myself have always been skeptical. Of additional crashes, but we have a chapter in the book that, that discusses exactly that. Richard, uh, I'd have to look at the the book to, to tell you which chapter that is. But we have a chapter. It's based on the work of Leonard Stringfield, who in 1978 uh, broke the crash barrier. Up until that point, talking about uh, bodies or extraterrestrial beings and crashes was taboo even amongst UFO buffs. But he broke the crash barrier in 1978 because he had so many friends. He lived in Cincinnati. He had so many friends at Dayton uh, that lived in Dayton, had worked at Wright, and had heard all the rumors that he started putting together these, these monographs uh called the, um, oh my goodness, uh, there were eight of them, and it was all, they were all eight were about UFO crashes, and uh, he died in 1994 after his uh, uh, last one, and uh, so we have a whole chapter based on Leonard Stringfield's work, what uh, people told him. Now, the thing about Leonard was that uh, he didn't name his sources, which is unfortunate, because we certainly would would follow up to corroborate or, you know, debunk uh, whatever the case may be. But to interview the witnesses, but he did not name in his monographs that he did not give the names. And uh, it turns out that one of them 
was Jesse Marcel. That was one of the early ones was Jesse Marcel. And another fella who we nicknamed uh, Tim was a fellow by the name of Lloyd Thompson, who we we knew about, uh, was also at uh, 509th Bomb Group. But uh, we did learn the name of one of the doctors who uh, was there at the autopsy of, of the one of the aliens from Roswell. So we did learn a few of them, but it's all in our it's all in that chapter. Uh, I think it's called Le- Leonard Stringfield and the Little Green Men. I think is the title of the chapter. So, as far as the uh, additional crashes, uh, he has the uh, stories that he has in there suggest strongly of a number of additional UFO crashes. Now, I myself have not investigated any of those because Roswell uh, proved to be a labor-intensive undertaking. We've spent the last quarter century solely on Roswell because there were so many witnesses. We have hundreds that know their little piece of the story. None of them uh, go beyond their little piece of the story, and it was our job like a puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle, to put them all together into a uh, coherent narrative, which I believe that we have done. And the second part of that narrative is what happened at Wright-Patterson after the material and the bodies were taken there. Well, uh, Thomas, I know that uh, Stanton is looking down and, uh, <laughs> and thinking uh, about you and, uh, and Don and saying to himself... A job well done. A job well done. UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson. How can people get a hold of the book? The uh, the, May, uh, the Barnes and Noble, of course, is our uh, book distributors. Barnes and Noble, and most people uh, go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble online. You can get it there. Uh, I have to check to see if you can get it through our website. But most people, I know myself, when I order a book. Uh, uh, non non UFO book. Uh, I go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and uh, uh, you can uh, take a look at our website uh, www.roswellinvestigator.com. Thomas, what yes. a pleasure! Thank you so much, and thank you uh, for UFO secrets inside Wright Patterson. Thank you, Richard. Uh, it was a distinct pleasure uh, uh, talking to you. All right, that's it for me. Next week on the program, The Science of Spirit Possession for the full two hours. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>